Hollywood used to sometimes be called a star factory for the way it assembly-lined young men and women into celebrities. That metamorphosis required press agents, hairdressers, fashion consultants, vocal coaches, makeup artists, even backstory writers who invented fictional biographies. Errol Flynn, for example, one of Warner Brothers' most popular leading men of the 1930s to 40s so-called Golden Age, was said to have been born and raised in England. There were even hints that he might have a distant connection to royalty. In actuality, Flynn was born on a coconut plantation in Tasmania. He'd already contracted and been treated for VD by the age of 17. The point is that Hollywood manufactured stars like Ford manufactured automobiles. The music industry took those lessons seriously and followed suit. John was the perfect example. He went back to the galley a few weeks later, prepared to re-record It's Almost Tomorrow, along with one other song by Tommy and two additional songs that they had collaborated on. The Shades were not invited. That was Ben's doing. He wanted to start conditioning John to see himself as a solo artist. He justified replacing the Shades by saying that he had to utilize union musicians for an official demo. This was partly true. In any case, John never questioned it. The session itself went well once John got over his nerves about playing with strangers. He was amazed at their sight-reading skills. The physical arrangement in the studio helped in that respect. All of the musicians and John were separated by distance and by sound baffles so that one musician's instrument wouldn't bleed into another's mic. That way, the recording engineer could control each individual microphone's volume and tone. Ben supervised and paid for the entire process, which took three hours in the studio for numerous takes to be recorded, plus additional hours of mixdown with Ben and the sound guy alone. John was impressed by how much of an investment Ben was making in him. Several weeks went by before Ben again called. He wanted John to perform the same songs back in the studio with the same backup musicians for some friends. When John arrived... Ben led him directly into the studio where the other musicians were setting up. He intentionally steered John away from the control room where several men in jackets and ties were already seated. They all seemed to be smoking cigars. The session went well. In fact, better than the last time because John wasn't as nervous. He felt more relaxed with the place, the other musicians, and the process. He sounded more confident and self-assured enough to give Ben a little more of the vocal attitude Ben had mentioned when they met back at HCR House. When the session ended, Ben, smiling like the cat that ate the canary, guided John into the control room where he was introduced to suits from a startup called Liberty Records. John had never heard of that label, but he tried to look impressed and answered all of their questions as best he could. He wanted to look and sound respectful, but he also wanted to continue radiating that sense of confidence that he'd just found in the studio. The meeting ended amicably for John, who was dismissed. However, it was also obvious that the meeting between Ben and the suits hadn't ended. So Liberty Records came through with what Ben called a training wheels contract, which heavily favored the record company and left John with little more than bragging rights. Ben then brought the deal to John, who brought the deal to Ruth, who brought the deal to Joyce, and the buck stopped there. Joyce said that John would accept the deal only if the fixed renewable contract was changed to a variable renegotiable contract. The telephone lines between Ben, Joyce, and the Liberty suits soon got a workout. 
The final compromise brought Johnny Domino, John's new artist name, a little more money, but a lot more creative control, which, according to Ben, could sometimes be more valuable. And so, John signed on the dotted line. The most immediate results included a whole new Johnny Domino wardrobe and hairstyle. Both the clothes and do were intended to project his new personality of a wholesome all-American boy in a black leather jacket with a couple of discreet metal studs. A mild DA haircut completed the look. Johnny Domino was approachable, but he was also a bit edgy. Ben gave him a list of expressions which he wanted John to work into his vocabulary, and Ruth was a great help when it came to showing John how to sit, stand, and walk with attitude. John made three appearances on Hartford Bandstand over the next two months. He mimed to songs on the demo tape. Ben paid close attention when he wasn't farting behind the scenery to how the crowd, which was largely made up of teenage girls, reacted. One particularly good sign was that they were equally enthusiastic whether John sang a ballad, M.O.R., or rock with maybe a little more swoon factor for the ballad. The contract called for John to start touring with a Liberty Records package that consisted of other Liberty performers, a backup band for the soloists, road managers, a wardrobe person, a hair and makeup person, and a couple of techies. The Liberty Record hit caravan would head west with one-night stands in every major city until they reached Chicago, where they'd have a short residency. A.K.A. a day off. Then they would head south to St. Louis and then east to Miami, where another short residency was scheduled. They then would head up the East Coast until they reached New York, where the tour would end. Ben called the tour's itinerary the Eastern Loop. The tour would kick off in Boston in two weeks and would last for six. John told the Shades, who immediately started auditioning replacements. Ruth planned a going-away party for the eve of John's departure. Everyone was there to wish him well. Joanne had everyone contribute to a survival package, which they presented to him with feigned fanfare. It consisted of a shoebox containing earplugs, eye shades, aspirin, throat spray, deodorant, toothbrush and toothpaste, cologne-labeled frou-frou juice, pre-stamped postcards and a pen, a jar of what looked suspiciously like Noxema, labeled Ego Cream, with directions to apply it liberally and often, a Johnny Domino fan club membership card with a 10% discount coupon on the back for Lenore's Fashions Lingerie and Intimates, some candy bars, chewing gum, zit cream, etc. Joanne's survival kit was the hit of the party, along with a chocolate cake, Johnny Domino's favorite, and Italian pastries that Patsy's mom and dad had contributed. All in all, it was a bittersweet send-off. When the last of the partygoers had started for home, everyone walking, except Spike, who had driven herself and had picked up Patsy en route, John stood alone in his front yard and watched Tommy and Joanne walking away. Tommy got home first. John watched from across the street as Tommy let himself in his side door and turned off the porch light. Joanne reached her house a minute later. She turned at her door, looked in his direction, and waved. John waved back. Then she disappeared, and her porch light went out. John stood alone for a moment, staring up at his friends, the Constellations. Then he went around the back of the house so that Ruth wouldn't come outside to see that he was crying. The 
Liberty Records' hit caravan tour lasted six weeks, but to John it felt like six months. They rehearsed the show for two full days in Alston, a seedy Boston suburb. During that time, they recorded at the Hotel Belmont, mostly because they could make use of the hotel's ballroom, which, although it had once hosted proms and cotillions, more recently had settled for barbers' conventions and trade shows. Still, the hotel rooms were clean and comfortable, and there was a we're-all-in-this-together enthusiasm from the first-time tour virgins. The veterans of previous caravans just looked resigned. In addition to Johnny, the backing band, and the crew, the remaining talent consisted of Teddy and the Tornadoes, a five-piece group with a second-tier hit called Your Satellite or Mine, Tina Pettit, who sang I'm Just the Loneliest Girl in the World, Davy Keith, who wondered When Will She Notice Me, Alan in the Top Hats, Yes, they actually wore them, who boogied suggestively to You Need to Get It Now, and at the top of the bill, The Girlfriends, who had a big hit with My Prince Charming and an album with the same title. It didn't take long for even a virgin like John to figure out whether each solo or group was traveling up Ben's Ark, had plateaued there, or had started down the steep slope to becoming old news. John decided, as Ruth had advised him, to learn what he could by listening and watching and to generally mind his own business, at least at first. Ben had given the tour's music director four new songs for John. Two were from Tommy. Ben had worked out a separate royalty-only contract with him. Ben paid the tour's music director separately to write arrangements for the new pieces and to rehearse them with John, with the band, and finally with John and the band. Of those four, a rocker called Shout Now really stood out. Ben had already pegged it as the B-side of Johnny Domino's first single. They left on a rainy Tuesday morning, headed for their first gig at a performance venue, the Majestic Hall of Music in Buffalo. They went on at eight. The music director, who also acted as MC, introduced Johnny Domino singing his new Liberty hit single, It's Almost Tomorrow, which drew a lukewarm response from a still-arriving crowd, which, at its peak, still only filled about half the hall. John, who had grown accustomed to singing his hit to rapturous local attention, was disappointed at the tepid reception. As a result... When the band broke into the second song of John's two-tune set, The Rocker Shout Now, John went into full high-energy sneer mode, prancing and posturing around the stage in order to demand the attention which he had missed with the ballad. The audience couldn't ignore him this time. He wouldn't let them. He finished the tune by rushing directly toward them at full speed, then dropping to his knees and sliding the last few feet to the very edge of the stage. His momentum almost carried him into the first row of fans. In fact, the girls closest put up their hands to protect themselves. While he managed to stop in time, the sweat on his brow didn't. That same momentum carried it right onto the first row. Those same teeny boppers squealed with delight, especially when he gave them his full lip curl action from just a few feet away. Tommy and the Tornadoes were up next. He heard them saying things to each other like, how are we going to top that, as he was coming off. They didn't. In fact, at the closing number when the whole troupe came out on the stage to sing Till Next Time, Johnny Domino's reception was second only to the girlfriends. 
For most performers, the road to making a living is a tedious, laborious grind. Remember what I said earlier about success? I said it took a minimum of three of these four. Good training, perseverance, talent, and luck. John couldn't complain too much about his training. Ben saw to that. It makes sense that he would, as John's success would fatten Ben's wallet. As for talent, John had it in spades. But perseverance was a harder nut to crack. Turing tested John in many ways, some professional and some personal. Relationships were expected. John and his busmates were young people in close quarters, working in a high-stress environment. One thing led to another. The tour in this respect was a series of shake-ups, break-ups, and make-ups. And then, of course, there were drugs, but the Liberty Suits had hired Billy Byers as music director because they knew they could count on him to run a clean tour. And he did. Sure, there was drinking and reefer, but only at motel room parties, never on the bus. Well, almost never. The most memorable thing that happened on what John looked back on as his virgin tour was a phone call from Ben, which came while the tour paused for a rare day off in Miami. Ben told John that he'd gotten a call from Billy Byers, communicating concern from some of the other acts, who were griping about the disproportionate For them. amount of attention Johnny Domino was generating from the audience. Billy said that some of the others felt that John was stealing the show. Billy told Ben that Ben had to rein John in. However, Ben told John that they were rearranging the performance order and that John would now go on in the middle of the lineup. So, Ben told John to just keep stealing. And John knew all about stealing. When John got off the train in Hartford, which he'd boarded in Grand Central, he was exhausted. He wanted Ruth's cooking. He wanted his friends. But mostly, he wanted his bed. And he pretty much lived in it for the first two days of his return. When he finally rejoined the land of the living, as Ruth put it, he called his friends. Tommy said that they wanted to get together as a group, so he wouldn't have to answer the same questions repeatedly. They met in Patsy's family room three days later. There, John described in sordid detail the glamorous world of a rising rock star. A world of fast food made the only option by a measly daily food allowance. Of oft-interrupted sleep. Run-down cheesy motels. Furtive groping on a semi-dark bus. Catering to pimply teenagers while feigning gratitude and dispensing illegible autographs, etc. Patsy asked John if he had at least enjoyed seeing parts of the country he otherwise likely would have never seen. John responded that, outside of their short stayovers in Chicago and Miami, most of the country passed by the bus windows at night in an endless stream of incandescent, fluorescent, and neon light. The music was the only reward, John said. We made good music. And much of the time we were making it for each other instead of the fans. John then told some stories about people and events on the tour. He had liked and gotten along with most of the others, but he had kept his distance from those he judged to have issues, and especially from those who thought their shit didn't stink. One thing that John was particularly proud of was his advancement on the bill. 
the order in which acts performed. John had started out on the bottom, meaning that he was a warm-up, an act that would go on first while people were still coming in and jockeying for locations with the best sight lines to the stage. It was next to impossible to engage the audience if you were a warm-up. The only way you could do it was to be over the top, which meant intentionally exaggerating everything about yourself and your performance. Bigger-than-life facial expressions, gestures, and postures were the order of the day. And in a way, this was good for John, because when he was moved up in the performance order during their short stay in Miami, he found that it was easier to turn down the performance voltage a little bit. Johnny Domino was still a character, but less a caricature. Also, with growth and respect from the fans had come growth and respect from his stablemates. The Shades brought John up to speed on what had happened at school and in Frenchtown during his six-week absence. It all amounted to nothing much. They had played a couple of dances with a substitute lead singer, Rich Rossi, whom John knew, but not well. The gigs had gone well. Their fans were still enthusiastic, but there was a sense that some of their own past enthusiasm had waned. Something had changed. The Fab Four Plus One had changed. Were changing. Ben called often. John met twice with him in Hartford. He claimed to be very pleased with John's progress. He claimed that the Liberty Suits were also very pleased about how well he had adapted to the lifestyle of a dues-paying musician. Ben told him that they were seasoning him for bigger things. In fact, the Western Loop Tour would be with mostly higher-tier acts in larger, fancier performance venues in bigger towns and cities. The really big news, however, was that Liberty Records was going to press promotional copies of Johnny Domino's first single with its Almost Tomorrow as the A-side and Shout Now as the B-side. These would be sent to radio stations all over the country for DJs to play and gauge the reaction to. If listeners reacted positively, they would release the single for general distribution. If that went well, the single could lead to an album. John would need more material. Ben suggested that John try to spend as much time as possible with Tommy to hammer out some new songs. Ben said he thought Tommy would agree to that, as Ben had already sent Tommy a couple of token amount royalty checks to grease the skids. Two weeks at home flew by for John. He spent as much time as he could with the others, singly and as a group, as their schedules allowed. He attended their rehearsals, and he even sat in for a couple of songs with the group at the one gig they played while he was home. He felt jealous of the rapport that had developed between Rich, their new lead, and the others, but he tried not to let it show. He didn't have to. They sensed it. Ruth threw a party, a barbecue, for John and the Shades on the night before he needed to get on a train that would ultimately take him to Dallas, where he would join the next tour for another six-week tour of the Western Loop. The barbecue was great fun. Spike had brought along her acoustic guitar to provide some entertainment, and that led to a sing-along where they all had to improvise verses to a made-up song. There was a lot more laughing than singing. The evening ended with hugs and handshakes. John felt really sad when the last of his friends drove away, Rich driving with Joanne in the passenger seat. John was doubly saddened to see Rich reach for Joanne's hand a couple of times during the barbecue and sing-along. 
Joanne discreetly moved out of range, but the implication was pretty clear to John. John was a great believer in something Ruth used to say. You have to make your own luck. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Now, to describe the tedium of Johnny Domino's slow climb to success would only share that tedium. Instead, jump into Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine with me again and flash forward two years. Now, exit the machine. Here's where we are. John is a tour veteran and a minor star. His first single, It's Almost Tomorrow, debuted on the Billboard charts with a bullet and went to number three in a week, where it stalled. His first album, also named It's Almost Tomorrow, was recorded and rushed into release where it sold only moderately well. Ben John and the Liberty Suits all felt that John was on the cusp of something big. The fear was that he would remain there, on the cusp. Now, John knew that his future hung in the balance. He knew that another hit single would help, but he wasn't sure if it would be enough. He decided then to make his own luck. And this is how Johnny Domino went from recording artist to superstar. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever you are and I'm coming home again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com.
Cause you know 